Don't shove a date up your pussy. No, please. Welcome back to another episode of the Fierce Females of History podcast, where we tell the stories of women from history that you should know about. I'm Lucy. I'm Erin. And I'm Talissa. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hello. We all know our own names, which is nice. (laughs) And this week, it is your turn, Miss Talissa Bazaz. What you got for us? Yes. So I have picked someone who I've wanted to cover since I heard of them. I watched a drunk history on them, actually. Oh, good old Which is amazing. Except, um, like a lot of big historical figures, it's not all what it seems. So I watched it and I thought, oh yeah. And then I like started digging and I was like, oh no. (laughs) So just, it's a bit of a journey. Um, Stay with us to the end though, because I think it's important that you get the full picture of this person. Layers. Layers, like 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 ogres, like an onion. Yes, like a parfait. Mm. And everybody likes parfait. This episode contains talk of abortion. It contains talk of uh, infanticide as well. And there are a number of topics that could be quite full on. It's a pretty heavy episode. So if you're listening in the car and you've got little ones, not the right time probably, I would say. And if you're not in the headspace to listen to this today, this is your warning. But it's a really good story. Mm Mm-hmm. So Margaret Sanger is who we're talking about today. And Margaret Sanger was actually born Margaret Louise Higgins and she was born on September 14, 1879 in New York. She was born into a Roman Catholic working class Irish family, just mm-hmm. in case you needed more labels in yep, that family. Okay. Her dad, Michael, immigrated to the US at age 14 from Ireland and he joined the army in the Civil War and was a drummer. Casual. At 15 in the army. And ended up becoming a stonecutter, sculpting angels and saints and things with tombstones. Someone has to do that, though. Yeah. That is someone's job. It's a good job. But, so he grew up super, super Catholic and basically becomes an atheist and starts becoming a free thinker, which is what they kind of thought about people back then who were a bit progressive. Vegans? What? uh, About vegans? Yes, exactly. Yes. (laughs) Hippies? What? (laughs) Well, he was an activist for the women's suffrage movement. Awesome. And Uh, was a supporter of free public education as well. So he ends up becoming quite a progressive guy. He's he's marching to the beat of his own drums. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Good for him. Exactly. Nice one, Michael. Now, her mum, Margaret's mum's name was Anne, and she moved to Canada with her family during the potato famine in in Ireland. Sorry. So she's from Ireland too. And they married in 1869 in the US. So Michael and Anne. She and Michael conceived 18 times, birthing 11 alive children. Wow. Her mother, Anne, had obviously several miscarriages and... Margaret grew up believing that all of these pregnancies, whether they, you know, ended with having a child or having a miscarriage or something in between, which were awful, contributed to her health. She was sick a lot and contributed to her early death. She only lived until around 40. Some reports say 50, but... Margaret. Early. What what number was she? Oh, Anne. Uh, Margaret. So Margaret was number six out of 11 alive children. But I'm not sure where she fell as far as the 18th. But it took a toll on her Mm mum, Anne, but... Yeah. The family lived in poverty. Um, Michael, while he was a free thinker, he preferred to drink and talk politics than stay to his jobs. And we talked about Marching being a to the bit of his own drum exactly. bit too much. Exactly. So he didn't always have a steady wage. But, but he had a steady beat. Sorry, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> Tapping out. 
Yeah. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I was expecting that. <laughs> so apparently he was a huge driving force behind Margaret's way of thinking as she got older. Like I said, Margaret was number six out of all the kids and she spent a lot of time doing household chores and taking care of family members because she was a girl living in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Great time um, to be a girl. Exactly. And she was poor at school and kids often made fun of her tattered old clothes and she kind of hated that she lived in poverty and she always dreamed of escaping it and making a, quotations, better life for herself. Mm-hmm. Right. So seeking a better life and supported by her two older sisters, Margaret went to Claverack College and Hudson River Institute nice. before enrolling, this is in 1900, at the White Plains Hospital as a nurse probationer. Now, she studied as a nurse for two years and graduated and she planned to go back a third year for study, but... Mm-hmm. She met and married uh, architect William Sanger, uh, which meant giving up her education because married vaginas couldn't possibly learn things, as we know. Mm -hmm. Mm, Very sad. Well-known fact. Yeah. She was quite sick throughout her life, but she did actually have three children, which they didn't kind of expect that she would have. And she was able to settle down into a quiet life in Westchester, New York, and um, which was like the suburbs of New York, not like the New York City that we probably think of, um, which could have been the end, right? Like that's what women were expected to do at the time. Like yep. settle down, have babies, just chill. And no prospects. The end. But funnily enough, her house caught on fire. They all were fine. But they decided to move to New York City, settling in the Manhattan neighborhood of Greenwich Village. Nice. That's which, cool. if I was to live anywhere, from what I've read, I want to live in Greenwich yeah, Village. Yeah, it is cool a very area. hot spot. Yeah. yeah. Place. Isn't that where... Um, yeah, the Stonewall Riots. Yes. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Greenwich. Happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the area was a bohemian enclave. <laughs> I had to Google both those words. <laughs> and this is in what? The 20s? <laughs> this is 1910, 1911. Oh, 1910s. Okay. Yeah. Wow, okay. So she's young. It was like known for its like radical politics and really like kind of free thinkers and kind of hippie, but just really progressive area. Woke area, exactly. And so the couple became immersed in that world. So Margaret was working as a nurse on the Mm -hmm. Lower East Side, predominantly with poor and uh, immigrant people. And during this work, it it was a really hectic time for her. It was a really heavy work because there were so many women who were waiting in line each day for a $5 abortion. Wow. Mm-hmm. And and $5 is a lot of money back then. And worse than that, exactly. She would have to treat all the women who couldn't afford the $5 and were on death's door from either an attempt of their, a, a, like attempted abortion illegally, yeah, yeah. or was legally, but, you know, dodgy, mm-hmm. or a self-abortion. Yeah. And these are women who did this again and again and again because they were poor. They didn't have resources. They couldn't afford to have more children. It would mean that their ch- children would basically starve to death. Mm-hmm. But there was no other help at the time. Mm-hmm. That's it. You fell pregnant. You kept the baby. The end. And contra- contraception was not It wasn't a thing. a thing yet. It wasn't a thing at all. Yeah, they didn't have any information on how to avoid unwanted pregnancy. So access to contraceptive information was prohibited on the grounds of obscenity by the 1873 federal Comstock laws and a host of other state laws as well. So Comstock laws prohibited any talk of contraceptives, abortion, any information given to patients, any information Mm. given to women, young women, old women, whatever. And the Comstock laws are going to come in a lot in this story. You're going to hear about them a lot. So seeking to help these women, Sanger visited the public libraries and she thought, well, there'll be a book on it. Mm-hmm. Well, no, there wasn't. Of course not. No, there's nothing. Nothing on contraception at all. So there's a story that Margaret would tell of this time and no one can kind of prove it's real. And she may have fabricated parts of it, but it, this story does line up with women's experiences at the time. 
So as a nurse, she was called to the apartment of a woman called Sadie Sachs, who had become extremely ill due to a self-induced abortion. And I'm, I'm quoting this from her story. Afterwards, Sadie begged the attending doctor to tell her how she could prevent this from happening again, to which the doctor simply advised her to remain abstinent. His words and actions apparently were to laugh and say, you want your cake while you eat it too, do you? Well, it can't be done. I'll tell you the only thing to do, tell Jake to sleep on the roof. I mean, he's not as horrible as that is. He's not wrong. But whose fault was it? Exactly. Exactly. Two to, two to tango? Where's exactly. the man? Exactly. Where's Jake? But at least he's sleeping on the roof, sleeping not on her. The roof, yeah. Yeah. A few months later, Sanger was called back to Sadie's apartment, only this time she died a short time after she arrived, um. after yet another self-induced abortion. Sanger would sometimes end this story because she told it quite often, saying she threw her nursing bag in the corner and announced that she would never take another case until she made it possible for working women in America to have knowledge to, to mm-hmm. control birth. And yeah. to think that these illegal and dangerous abortions were taking place right up to the 70s and 80s and even maybe a little bit in the 90s, depending on what part of the world. Oh, I think they still happen. Still happening now yeah. is yeah. just heart-wrenching. It's awful. Sanger objected to the unnecessary suffering endured by these women and she fought to make uh, contraceptive information and contraceptives available pretty much for the rest of her life. From what I can gather, the contraceptives she was talking about and trying to put forward were douching and suppositories. And they weren't particularly effective. They did work in some cases, but as we know now you, with the information you, we have. Should you explain those a little bit for people uh, who yeah, might okay. not know? I've got no idea what douching is. Okay, douching is... because yeah. you don't watch Drag Race. Although Drag Race, I don't really talk about I learned about this at SRC Camp in Year 9. Of course you did. Because a girl left you her douche out. so much on that camp. <laughs> there was a story it's about how, oh, Angela that. left her douche out. And I was like, what's that? And everyone was like, oh, yeah. Ha, ha. And everyone was like Googling that night madly. Okay. The word douche means to wash or soak. Mm-hmm. So douching is washing or cleaning out the inside of a vagina with a with water or a mixture of other fluids. and well, genitals um, in general. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, uh, you can also douche your anus as well. You can buy prepackaged mixes or you can make your own and basically you squirt it up, it washes all the things that are in there out. So in theory, in their thinking, this will clear out the sperm as well. Mm-hmm. Cute. I knew that douche meant to shower, but I didn't know that. There you go. Yeah. Where the suppository contained spermicide that um, worked to prevent pregnancy in two ways or attempted to. It created a foamy substance that blocked the entrance of the cervix so sperm couldn't get through it and it immobilizes and kills the sperm so they can't travel to the womb anyway. And when my grandma was younger, that's the contraceptives that they were told to use. Really? Yeah, when, as she was a, like a you know, married woman and mm. didn't want any more kids, that's basically mm. the options wow. that she was given. Yeah. It should be said, though, I wouldn't say this actually. Did you know that ancient Egyptians were some of the first in the world to have contraceptives? This does not surprise me with the Egyptians. They used a combination of cotton, dates, honey, and acacia, I think it's pronounced, as a suppository. And it turns out fermented acacia really does have a spermicidal effect. And I'm using the quotations, please don't use that at home. Please use <laughs> modern technology. Don't shove a date up your pussy. No, please. <laughs> So anyway, so the, so contraceptives have been around for a long time, but obviously they weren't that effective. And also in the Bible and the Quran, it refers to coitus interruptus, which is a withdrawal method. And I also actually really love that term, mm-hmm. coitus, coitus interruptus. interruptus. <laughs> it sounds like something you'd see in like a textbook, like yeah, so, under like a defined one point two <laughs> coitus interruptus index. But it's in the Bible and the Quran. So yeah, contraceptives have been around for a while. There was no information about it. They weren't very effective, and women were really suffering as a result. And also, no one was being educated on it. No, at, at all. No, no one knew. No, was allowed to legally. And it was too expensive if there was. Yeah, exactly. I'm picturing a lot of women still going to, you know, like the local neighbourhood witch and getting their, you know, their mixture of herbs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
and that people and, would do. And doing that was legal. Yeah. Like you weren't allowed to. You weren't allowed to buy anything that was sold was used as a contraceptive because mm. of this um, law I talked about before, the Comstock laws. They weren't allowed. So Margaret was like, this is fucked. And so she joined the Women's Committee of New York Socialist Party and the Liberal Party as a supporter of the Industrial Workers of the World Union. And she participated in a number of strikes, including the textile strike and the silk strike, which have nothing to do with contraceptives, but just show that she was like, for the people, let's get things done. The textile and the silk strike. Right, okay. Which obviously sound like industries that impact women the most. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the Comstock Act of 1873 prohibited the trade and circulation of obscene and immoral materials. And that is why you could not find anything in a book. Or in a pamphlet or anywhere else. So, like, no information, no education. Nada. It included publications, devices, and medicines as well. So none of that was allowed to be sold or distributed. And it made mailing or importing anything related to these topics as a crime. So say you had family in England or in Europe, in France, they might have a bit more information if they sent it to you. Illegal. Wow. Yeah, so it was a crime. So Sanger's political interests um, and her emerging feminism and nursing experience led her to write a series of two different columns on sex and education, which were titled What Every Mother Should Know was the first one in 1911 and 1912 that was distributed and What Every Girl Should Know in 1912 and 1913. And they were for the socialist magazine New York Call. And in them she was quoted saying, no woman can call herself free until she can choose consciously whether she will or will not be a mother. Boom. Yeah. Readers were outraged. But other readers praised her because it was all this information, really raw, flat out, just exactly what they needed to know. And so it was really divisive. It was very much conservatives were like, this is disgusting. And people who desperately wanted this information, it was a lifeline. And there's still a divide. Yep. In this time as well, she began dreaming of a magic pill to be used to control pregnancy. But she's like, ah! That's silly. Did it come to her in a dream, oh, as they all say? Maybe. I was dreaming under the field of flowers. <laughs> but she dreamt of it. A magic pill. Could you imagine? <laughs> anyway, let's keep going. So Sanger opposed abortion, funnily enough, but was primarily um, because she thought it would make it makes people sick and it was quite dangerous. So that's why she mostly opposed abortion. Um, but she wanted to prevent pregnancy from the get-go. Occurring. Because she didn't like the thought of abortion. Look, it's a logical anyway. connection. It is, but opposing abortion, not very feminist. Anyway, but in the time. But given the connection between contraception and working class, um, Margaret came to believe that only by liberating women from the risk of unwanted pregnancy could social changes start happening, which is really fucking true. Mm. And she launched a campaign to challenge the government's censorship at the time, which didn't allow information to be spread. And in 1914, she started a feminist publication called The Women Rebel, or The Woman Rebel, which promoted a woman's right to have birth control, which was a term that she created. Wow. It was a collab with one of her anarchist friends. They popularised the term of birth control, and that's why we say it today. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So two very simple words, so much effect. But before that, it was called family limitation, which pissed off a lot of people. So what power words have, because when it became birth control, not family limitation, it Made it easier to talk Different about, right? connotation. Yeah. So also, in- this was so long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And we're still having this debate? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Continue. Thank you, penises. <laughs> no, okay, that's not fair. Thank, Thank you, you, conservatives. Yeah. Whatever you believe in. So The Woman Rebel was her publication, and it was an eight-page monthly newsletter which promoted contraception and had the slogan, No Gods, No Masters. I love that. Only queens. Yeah. And she was quoted saying as well that each woman should be the absolute mistress of her own body. Super progressive at the time. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Also because mistress was considered as a, you know, yeah, controversial term. Well, it was. It's to be in charge, right? Like it's to mm-hmm. be the have the complete control and power and yeah. authority of your own body. Master if or only mistress. we had that now. Yeah. 
Mm. Okay, so she saw birth control not only as a health issue but a free speech issue. And so one of the goals of this publication was to challenge the anti these laws we've been talking about, the Comsec laws, anti-obscenity laws. I keep um, thinking of Comsec as the trading platform. Comsec? Comstock. Like, <laughs> Tom from Comsec. I've been thinking about a lot about investing in that is why I'm calling it Comsec. <laughs> Comsec has nothing to do with his laws. That it's is gold. Stock, That's hilarious. Which has even more, it sounds like more investing because it's stock. Comstock. Yeah, Comstock. Okay. Comstock laws. Comstock, <laughs> laws. Comstock laws. Comstock laws. And we're going to put them and in. If there's any comsex in here, it's because Talissa's thinking of investing. <laughs> yes. She's like, advice. She is on the Bitcoin train. <laughs> choo choo. I know, which is falling rapidly. Um, anyway, so that was her plan with this woman rebel. It was one, to get information out, but two, to keep challenging these laws because it was killing women. Right. It was literally killing people. Okay. So this magazine, The Woman Rebel, was started being distributed, but five of seven postal authorities. Um, wouldn't allow it to be distributed by them because it was legal. So she continued the publication anyway, but there were already restraints from the minute she started. So she started working on a 16-page pamphlet called Family Limitation, which contained detailed, graphic, precise descriptions of contraception methods. So we're talking details of devices and medications and contraceptives and also abortion, which was another huge challenge to these laws. Mm. And in 1914, in August, Margaret was indicted for violating postal obscenity laws by sending the woman rebel through the postal system. They knew it was coming. It had already been stopped by five out of seven postal authorities, so... She kind of expected it, but instead of facing court, she fled to England because mm-hmm. she's like, I've actually got more to do. Thank you so much for yeah. that <laughs> opportunity to go to jail, but I'm going to pass Thanks on this occasion. <laughs> yeah. So she, Stay in touch. Yeah. <laughs> just let me know. I'll Don't call me. I'll call you. So she moved to the UK and she started working with the women's movement there and researched forms of birth control, including diaphragms, which she actually learnt about at a Dutch facility because parts of Europe were far more advanced when it came to contraceptives than America was. Wow. Diaphragms were that long ago too. Yeah. So um, this was in 1914. They had birth control clinics in the Netherlands and that's where she learned about them. And she was convinced that that would be better and more effective than douching and suppositories. Um, And she grabbed some. She took some with her. Bought some, I'm assuming. Um, in this time when she's in England, she divorces her husband. She stole them. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's already a criminal, so what she got to yeah. lose? She divorces her husband, but he actually doesn't stop the plight for what they believed in, and he actually gets arrested for handing out her magazine, even though they're not together That's anymore. Cool. Yeah, because he handed one out. So the Comstock laws were created by a guy called Anthony Comstock, and I'm sure he has an important role, but I just don't care that much. And... Um, <laughs> Her, Brutal. <laughs> her husband or ex-husband handed one of the pamphlets to one of his little spies, one of his little people working for him, and that's why he got arrested. Yeah. And at this time, while she's in England, she's divorced, she'd start setting some smarty pants around the place, including writer H.G. Wells. Ooh. Does that mean anything to you? Yes. yes. I wrote, this means nothing to me, but it might for you, lol. H.G. <laughs> <laughs> Wells is pretty big, big writer. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I popped it in. Because <laughs> I don't know what the fuck What's is. something Talissa would know? Let me, let me pull them up. Okay. I'll go through a few. Big, huge sci-fi writer. And other topics too, actually. So he did The War of the Worlds. The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, which has actually been adapted recently into a very important movie about domestic uh, abuse. And Our Lady Erin was going to be the oh stunt God. double. Definitely not what Oh, my God, Elizabeth that? Moss. That movie, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, the Island of Dr. Moreau. I've seen – oh, my God, my friend Amy was in that production in Sydney. I went and saw that. I did yeah, not. Yeah, H.G. Wells. That was a creepy story. Yeah, so H.G. Wells. There were other names. I was like, I don't know them. Meh, 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 meh. 
So she was um, in England, hanging out with really progressive people. That writer do that's so important. And she <laughs> she started hanging out with a group who call were called Malthusianism. Neo Malthus. They were a part of the Neo Malthusianism movement. Oh, do explain. I've written. What's that? Let me help you. <laughs> Neo Malthusianism is the idea that population growth is potentially exponential, right? Like it will increase very quickly. There is no end to it. But food supply and other resources is linear. So she... Which eventually reduces living standards to the point of triggering population die-off. Long story short, they are totally for population control. Yeah. Right, so limiting the rate of which population grows. So, as we can see, there are some crimson flags. Maybe not red quite yet, but there are some... There's some questions. Significant flags. These females were sometimes problematic. Yes, I... Yep. Oh, yep. So, the concerns of of overpopulation is something she carried with her for the rest of her life, and I can't help thinking Thanos and Avengers. (laughs) Yep. Fair. Fair. So Fair. we're back in 1914 still. I just kind of mentioned some things that she carries with her for life, but let's stay on the course of time. So 1914, still in England. She was influenced by that, by the liberation theories of Havelock Ellis. And let's check in who wasn't famous. And under whose tutelage uh, she sought to make sex safer for women, but also pleasurable. Good for Good her. She started learning that, you know, it could be a bit of fun. She still was super conservative, though. Like, she doesn't believe that women should be the object of lust or have lust toward things. And she, She's a, honestly a walking contradiction because she believes that sex should be pleasurable, but she doesn't want people to have sex with too many people. Do you so know it's what? like, you can't have a cake and eat it. No, but she's people also are, a product of her time. Totally. And people are allowed to contradict themselves. Yes, and that's she's I a I contain multitudes. Exactly. She's. I contradict myself. Yes. An onion, as we can, as we'll soon <laughs> see, because she's got layers. So, in England, she's working the women's movement. She's researching other forms of birth control. And in October 1915, the charges against her in America are dropped. And so she heads back home to America, but not before smuggling some diaphragms in her suitcase, the ones she picked up in <laughs> the Netherlands. And also, uh, England was kind of starting to bubble with that sort of thing, mm-hmm. too. So, in the months that followed, she began promoting birth control, which is her little word that she made up. And in 1916, she opened the first birth control center in the United States in Brooklyn. They advertised the clinic in three different languages, English, Italian, and Yiddish as well. Yay. So it was a lot of immigrant women who used these services and needed these services because a lot of time they couldn't afford other services that were available. Mm -hmm. So she was arrested during a raid just nine days after the clinic opened and her bail was set at $500. So she went home, but she started seeing women at the clinic pretty much straight away. So the police came straight back. And the second time, (laughs) Margaret and her sister Ethel were both arrested for providing information on contraception and fitting women for diaphragms. Margaret was also charged with running as a public nuisance. Well, la da So they were put to trial in 1917. Her sister was convicted to 30 days in a workhouse but went on a hunger strike. And it was only when Margaret promised that her sister would never break the law that she was pardoned for another 10 days. So she only worked, had 20 days behind bars. Margaret, though, totally different story. She was convicted and the trial judge said to her that women did not have the right to copulate with the feeling of security that there will be no resulting contraception. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It does. It basically means women don't have the right to decide their fate when it comes to sex. They don't have a right. Period. (laughs) (laughs) Or 
or not, period. So that's the problem. <laughs> so she was offered a lighter sentence if she promised not to break the laws again. And she said, I cannot respect the law as it exists today. So she was sentenced to 30 days at a workhouse. Okay. But there was one huge win from this that was a win for the birth control movement. So she appealed. And while the court wouldn't overturn the verdict that she was guilty and broke the law, it did make an exception to allow doctors to prescribe contraception to their female patients for medical reasons. Okay. A huge step forward. Yes. 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 So public publicity surrounded the trial and the arrest and all of it and actually sparked a lot of activism for birth control around the country. It sparked a number of donors, financial donors, to come forward and provide funding and any support she needed for her future endeavours. So she actually had a, quite a few people, big names, backing her. And I'm going to mention one of those in a minute. So in 1917, Sanger published the monthly periodical, I love that we're using the word period when it comes to this, Birth Control Review. But she wasn't done. That's As soon as she gets out of prison, by the way, she writes that. Well, period comes from the word periodical. Or does periodical come from the word period? Oh, no. <laughs> the Matrix. <laughs> After World War I, 1921, she establishes the American Birth Control League which later becomes Planned Parenthood Federation. Oh, yes. Fun fact, she served as its president until 1928, but we are skipping ahead. So let's go back. The league had a number of principles and they were, we hold that children should be, one, conceived in love, two, born of a mother's conscious desire, and three, only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent contraception except when these conditions can be satisfied. So unless you could meet all three of those requirements, Mm -hmm. you don't have to have a baby. Yeah. If only it was so simple. Sure. (laughs) So she organized the first American birth control conference held in New York City in which she and Mary Windsor were arrested for attempting to address a mass meeting on birth control at Town Hall. Um, People actually protested their arrest and public opinion began swelling in her favor. And again, it saw the number of people who backed her and pushed for birth control and offered her financial support increase. So every time she's arrested, it actually works in her favor because more people start getting behind her cause. So in 1922, she marries South African oil businessman Noah Slee and he provides funding for her work. And Slee is so passionate about her work. He is an oil mogul, like I said, and he starts smuggling diaphragms into New York from Canada in boxes labelled three-in-one oil. (laughs) (laughs) Three-in-one oil. Yeah, and he becomes so passionate, in fact, down the track, he becomes the first legal manufacturer of diaphragms in the United States. But that isn't for a number of years. Wow. Passionate, Um, but also if you're an oil mogul, I can never say that word. Oil mogul. Mogul. Magnate. Um, You're obviously probably a very good businessman and you would see business potential and you'd see the growing mm-hmm. not saying um not lessening it but you no. would also have to be not very smart to actually see the ground swell of support and be like this is going to be huge. huge i'm gonna i it. can make a killing on this yeah, oh that exactly is a terrible right. terrible well he's not he can make a killing on it yeah, yeah. He's, he's gonna make a lot of money he's and not making it's a term job. yeah <laughs> you're right it's not just the social conscience of being like oh this will help people it's also like i'm a business like it's a savvy decision it really is so she travels to china korea japan talking about birth control learning about birth control there she observes in china that the primary method of family planning was female infanticide so women killing their okay babies. that is not birth control and so she works with a person called pearl buck to establish a family planning clinic in shanghai Hang on. After they're born, killing them? Yeah. Well, there's still reports of that happening in lots of societies around the world. So she starts creating these 
family planning clinics mm. in Shanghai. She visits Japan six times and works with Japanese feminist Kato Shidzu, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, to promote birth control in Japan. And in 1923, while the, with the league, she opened the first legal birth control clinic in the United States. It was called the Clinical Research Bureau, and it was set Huge. out to exploit that loophole that doctors could hand out contraception if there was a medical reason to do so. Uh-huh. So this clinic was finding medical reasons to do so. Awesome. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it was the first legal birth control clinic in the United States, staffed entirely by female doctors and social workers. Woohoo. Yeah. What year was this? This was in 1923. The clinic was funded by John D. Rockefeller Jr. The Rockefellers, the Rockefellers had a lot of influence. Yeah. And his family, who continued to make anonymous donations to the cause for decades to come, but anonymous. So mm. no one knew about it until years later. It's these times where things start to change a little bit. So we saw a little red flag before. Mm-hmm. We're going to see some more red flags now. And so I want to give you the warning that she is a complicated woman. Mm-hmm. She's done a lot of good. Okay. But she's got interesting but motives. This bit will get interesting. Let's see what happens next. So when you look up Margaret Sanger, you get two kind of people that you get to look at. You get the Margaret Sanger who was a pioneer for women's rights. She was a pioneer for contraception. She started educating women, saving lives, worked as a nurse. Has a, We have a lot to thank her for, for all the things she's pioneered because they help us today, right? right. But, huge but, her motives are extremely questionable. Now, when you Google her name, you'll find resources from two different parties. People like Planned Parenthood, who she obviously created the clinic that became Planned Parenthood, people who are very progressive and acknowledge her wrongs, but paint her in a pretty positive light. Yeah. And then you get the church. And every video on YouTube, pretty much when you type in her name, is actually, if you click the link, a church YouTube, Mm. a religious YouTube, where they talk about the negative parts of her personality. They basically discredit her because of her link to that neo-Malthusianism. Yes. (laughs) And the things I'm about to talk about. Okay. Okay. So. And they all have evidence to support those theories? Yes. So she continued her work lecturing. And she was going to churches, women's clubs, homes, theatres, events, scientists, blah, blah, blah. Lots of different places. But one of them was the Women's Auxiliary of the Ku Klux Klan in Silver Lake, New Jersey. Oh, okay. That is that is bad. Bad. There is no way to make that sound any better. No. no. It's bad. But Planned Parenthood say that in 1920, when she spoke to the KKK, there was still a mainstream movement, I'm using quotation marks, and it was considered a legit anti-immigration organisation. But even then, the Ku Klux Klan listed their enemies as blacks, Catholics and Jews. Yeah. She said, I just wanted to speak to an audience who would listen. And she had a lot of things to say about them when she writes a book later on, calling them like children. They were really weird. It was like they weren't, um, you know, mentally sound mind. Group. Probably not. Why are we surprised that with the Ku Klux Klan? But that doesn't excuse the fact that she went there as a speaker. Yeah. Just quickly, I have a son that I work with. And if she listens, I'm sorry. Um, you know this. Whenever she writes, you know how you, when you write okay, mm. or like you're saying, yeah, I'll do that or whatever. She goes, KKK. And I have to say every time, like, just keep it to the two Ks. <laughs> Why does she say KKK? She just means like KKK. Like, okay, I'll do it. Well, then KKK. KKK. Like, make a four. Like uh, a four or two. And I'm always, I'm always like, just just oh, please, yeah. just 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 don't do the three. Or just the passive-aggressive K full stop would be great. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Not great. Not great stuff. Like I said, neo-Malthusianism. Yes. Great. 
Um, well, she really liked it. Um, she also liked eugenics. And eugenics was becoming popular. And she was like, yes, love this for us. This is great. So eugenics at the time was the quotation marks science of improving society through plant breeding. So a lot of American scientists and doctors actually were in favor of this. So did a lot of politicians from both sides, both the conservative and socialist sides of politics. And it was also taught in university as quite a positive thing at the time. That's wild. Yeah. So they wanted to reduce the frequency of undesirable genetic attributes like diseases. Uh, That wasn't the end though. They also believed in the most malicious of cases that forced breeding or sterilization could increase um, could help with the decrease of ethnic populations. So they believed that you could sterilize people and stop them from breeding and therefore you would no longer have undesirable quotation marks. Same thing with genetic with disabilities. I was gonna say that yeah. was the same so there? yeah. They believed that certain ethnic groups were biologically inferior and they believed that sterilizing them and not allowing them to um, have children was a good thing. That's like they in the sixties and seventies that people would get a lobotomy to not be gay anymore. So heartbreaking. It's disgusting. Yeah. So Sanger did write about eugenics and she said, I admire the courage of a government that it takes to stand on sterilisation of the unfit and my second admiration is the subject of the interpretation of the word unfit. So she was like, if you see them as being unfit, I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. But what does unfit mean? If by unfit, it means there is physical or mental defects of a human being that is an admirable gesture, right? If you think they're unwell or unable to have children in your eyes that's fine but if unfit refers to races and religions that is a that is a thing that i deplore that's what she she said said that yeah but she agreed for people with maybe they had um a developmental delay maybe they had some sort of disability maybe they had lots of things and she just she thought that was okay so she didn't fully agree with eugenics but she did write against some elements and she thought that only healthy and desirable mothers should breed and wealthy enough to be able to look after their children. She did support a very controversial Supreme Court ruling, which was called Buck versus Bell, which ruled the compulsory sterilization of the unfit was allowed under the constitution, even without the person's consent or knowledge, leading to over 60,000 sterilizations in the United States. It is such an interesting um, contradiction that she's all about women's rights to choose in one regard, but all about restricting that freedom in another like I wonder the mental gymnastics that you have to leap through to think that's okay yeah I'm gonna say something potentially controversial on top of this obviously I'm in full support of abortion nine months whatever it's your choice your body your choice Mm -hmm. but I, I can't help but think okay you need to think about the time and the amount of information that was unknown to the world mm-hmm. yeah. as far as science goes, as far as the economy goes, as far as socialism goes. I also, Yeah, I think it's worth noting that World War II hasn't happened at this stage. World so War II, exactly. The worst, well, not probably not the, could be worse, but the, probably the worst historically example of eugenicism hasn't come about yet. Exactly. So she wouldn't have known how bad it could be. Exactly. And you, you have the discussion about abortion today and people who are for and against abortion and the rights of abortion and whether or not a fetus is a fetus and having giving birth to a baby even though they're going to have a lifetime of difficulty. And a lifetime with three days. Or, exactly, a lifetime of three days, a lifetime of 30 years of difficulty. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's the mother's choice, right? Yeah. We all agree with that here. Yeah. 
But then when you put that in the context of that time, when they didn't know or have access or have the advancement in support for people with disability, the race thing, I'm not talking about. That's just all types of fucked up racism, right? But I'm talking more about disease and illness and people with disability. That's what I'm referring to. I am not supporting what she says, obviously. But it's just interesting to think, okay, how much did that impact then? It's tricky. So, yeah. This is all a product of its time, but yep. it's also a product of racism. Exactly. It's a product of um, ableism. Exactly. So, in 1928, due to conflict with the birth control movement, she kind of stopped working with what would become Planned Parenthood and started working with a different group called the Birth Control Clinical Research Bureau, which we've already talked about. But they, again became a research bureau. They really started trying to find ways to like get around this loophole. Mm. So side note on her relation with Noah, let's go back to that, her husband, second husband. They had a prenup, which was very unconventional for the time. They also lived at separate separate residences and at her request, and they didn't even have keys to each other's places because she wanted to have freedom. I love yeah. that. She kept a professional name, and I think that's pretty cool as well. So – there's two sides to her, side that I want to love so badly mm. and this side that I want to despise yeah. so badly. And so I'm constantly conflicted when I write these. I write things like cute and I'm like, this is fucking disgusting in my notes. So it's like, ah, okay. She wrote several books during the 1920s which had nation- nationwide impact promoting the cause of birth control. And between 1920 and 1926, 567 copies of Woman and the New Race and the Pivot of Civilization was sold, which was her book. She wrote two autobiographies and... um. In the 1920s, 500 letters which had been sent to her from women desperate to prevent unwanted pregnancies were compiled into a book called Motherhood in Bondage. Wow. Wow. That's a really powerful book that still exists, obviously. So the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control, she formed that, and that was to lobby for legislation to overturn restrictions on contraception. And the effort failed, so she thought, F that, I'm going to do it another way. So she tried to get them to listen to her by going through appropriate channels. And then she's like, oh, fuck it, I want to see what happens. So she ordered a diaphragm from Japan in 1932. Mm-hmm. And it got stopped by the Postal Service and she got in trouble for it. And it did exactly what she wanted it to do. It provoked a decisive battle in the courts. Okay. So she got charged for importing a diaphragm. So the diaphragm was confiscated by the US government and she went to court and it was actually her legal battle that led to the 1936 court decision to overturn one of the Comstock laws which prohibited physicians from getting contraceptives. And from then on, doctors could order contraceptives from overseas to give to their patients. Right. Yeah. They weren't able to do. They were able to give them out, but they weren't able to bring them into the country. Right. That motivated the American Medical Association in 1937 to adopt contraception as a normal medical service and a key component of medical school curriculums. Boom. Huge. That's a massive step. Yeah. Yeah. She continued speaking around the country and had friends who even helped her speak when she was prevented by certain state governments or local governments. Mm -hmm. So in Boston, where the Catholic Church was like huge, um, powerful, they wouldn't let her speak but a Harvard historian actually read her speech while she appeared next to him on stage with her mouth <laughs> gagged. One for the dramatics, and I'm here for it. Yes, um, girl. Yeah. Make a statement so yeah. making a statement. <laughs> Literally without yeah. making a sound. So she found ways to make it work, make her words heard. And um, in 1948, she found the International Committee on Planned Parenthood, which evolved into International Planned Parenthood 
Federation in 1952 and became the world's largest non-government international women's health, family planning and birth control organisation. She was their first president and she served in that role until she was 80 years old. Wow. Problematic queen. Well, yeah. (laughs) So hard, right? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Hard to like. Yeah. But we're just telling the stories. We're not writing yeah, exactly. them. exactly. So it was the 1950s, early 1950s, and Margaret was still convinced that there was a better contraceptive out there. So she encouraged philanthropist Catherine McCormick to provide funding to biologist Gregory Pincus for the development of a birth control pill, this magic pill she thought up all these years ago. Mm. Pincus recruited Dr. John Rock, a Harvard genealogist, to investigate the clinical use of progesterone mm-hmm. to prevent ovulation. Right, right, yeah. right. Is this sounding familiar? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because it was developed and sold <laughs> under yeah. the name Envoid and it was approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 1960 and it was the first version of the pill that is still sold today. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And what day? What, what year? 1960. 1960. Mm-hmm. 1960? How old was she in 1960? She's been getting, getting on, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah. Oh, 80? Wow. 80. She was exactly 80, I'm pretty sure. Holy dooly. That's what I was going to say when we first started talking about her and it was so long ago. I was like, but the pill wasn't invented until the 60s. I was like, huh? I know. This is wild. I know. So the guy, the biologist who was behind it, um, said that he doesn't believe it would have happened without Margaret and also Catherine, the philanthropist who put the money toward it. Right, right, right. Everyone needs a rich friend. (laughs) Exactly. And she was super rich. Um, So she lived to see the pill being invented. Cool. Which was huge. Another important reproductive rights milestone in 1965 was when the Supreme Court made birth control legal for married couples in this decision, Griswold versus Connecticut. It wasn't legal for singles, but it was legal for married couples who could no longer wanted children or never wanted children, which was a big thing. And just a year after this decision that Margaret got to see, she died of congestive heart failure in 1966 in Arizona at the age of 86. Wow. Yeah. So across the nation to this day, there are still a number of women's health clinics that carry out her name and in remembrance of her efforts to advance, you know, rights of women and birth control as well. Planned Parenthood exists because of her. Although they do denounce a number of things she did, like speak at the KKK convention, the eugenics stuff that she backed, um, but they also continue to acknowledge the huge and pivotal role she played in birth control to this day. Wow. So complicated. Interesting. Were her intentions a lot of gray pure of heart? No, I don't believe so. Yeah. yeah. But, and this doesn't diminish that, there are things that we have now that have helped us progress as humans because we don't because of her does that make sense like yeah we have birth control because of her but she was still problematic and may i also say there was things i was as i was writing this i was like wow she's done this she's done this she was a middle-class white woman like she was already in a position of privilege and it's probably why she was so successful in getting these things across if she had been a woman of color an immigrant woman a poorer woman i don't see her Mm. actually having the success that she had Mm. so while we praise her efforts and say wow she did this this and this she's a pioneer she was in a really good position to be a pioneer yeah but if you're going to use a good position to do something productive yeah yeah. even if you do things that are counterproductive at the same time and she still did it and she did she did still come from poverty so she did yeah Mm. but yeah she held a lot of terrible Beliefs. Yeah, and it's hard when it's so long ago, you know, you can't just jump on Twitter and cover yourself, you know, speak for yourself and, you know, what you really mean by this. That, and the other. I'm not trying to be a devil advocate and I'm not trying to support the bad things that she did, but it's just perspective. She, she writes, writes a lot about them. Like, I, she's 
very good at writing. She's very clear in what she thinks and what she means. And I, I'm not going to read everything she's ever written, but it's worth reading her, like the mental gymnastics that you mentioned before, like her try and find a way to justify yeah. what she mm. was doing and the causes that she aligned herself with. Yeah, yeah I don't... I don't problematic I AF. I don't think we do anyone any favours by acting as though all women throughout all of history have been these perfect, wonderful, kind, brave. Like one of the biggest things about feminism is the understanding that women can be awful. Mm-hmm. Like you've got to give... We've got to give our ladies the full spectrum of humanity. She's a very complicated, complicated person. She's done incredible things. She's done terrible things or had terrible beliefs that we can't condone beliefs. today. Yeah. Well, as always, you can reach out to us on social media at Fierce Females Podcast on Instagram or Fierce Females of History on Facebook. You can email us. It's fiercefemalesofhistory at gmail.com. And, hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down, give us a rating and write a little comment. We'll, we'll see you and you'll see us. It'll be nice. Yes. <laughs> Give us some love. <laughs> <laughs> or you can send us your your mail in a box labelled triple use oil. <laughs> <laughs> Three in one. Three in oil. one oil, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>